Welcome back, everyone. Today on the Deals of Carlson Show, we're going to be going over five different dividend-paying stocks that I consider to be incredibly high quality. Now, these aren't your average dividend-paying companies. They are higher quality than almost any other company in the entire world. So we'll be going over each of them, and I'll be explaining my reasoning behind it and why I'm buying each of these companies. Now, we also have some other news we'll be getting into later in this episode. Inflation came in a little bit hotter than expected. U.S. retail sales rebounded. And we have the buzzword of the year, which is AI. I'll be talking about companies using this term, not to really describe any innovative change, but more so as a marketing term to investors. And the history of these type of marketing terms in the past. So let's go ahead and jump right in. I'm going to be talking about five core positions. Each one of them make up over 10% of my portfolio. So the five companies we're going to be jumping into combined make up a value of over $220,000. That's a lot of money to be invested in just five individual companies. But these are companies, like I said, that have such high quality that I don't actually consider it as taking a great deal of risk. In fact, part of what I'm doing here is trying to minimize risk by only buying companies that have extremely solid moats, extremely solid business models. The first one, and this may not surprise you. I've said this before, I've been buying into S&P Global. I think this company, frankly, does not get the attention that it deserves. There's a lot of other flashy companies. There's Tesla, there's Amazon, there's Apple. There's lots of companies that we know about as humans going apart and consuming different products. Meanwhile, S&P Global is kind of this enigma. It's this company that you might have a hazy understanding about, a little bit cloudy, it's a credit rating company, but what does that actually mean? It's very simple to define. I can easily summarize S&P Global's business into three different categories. We have one of the big ones here, credit ratings. This is around 30 to 40% of the revenue. All the credit ratings is, is that between them and Moody's, so between S&P Global and Moody's Corporation, they rate around 90% of the world's debt. Now there's like $100 trillion worth of debt so there's a lot of it, and these two companies have a toll bridge of rating that debt. This is a very wide moat, high margin part of the business. It has a little bit of cyclicality, but I think at this point, it's a nearly unbreakable moat. So I consider this 30 to 40% of the business to be incredibly strong. The next portion we have is the market data. This is the part where they just recently purchased IHS Market, a data provider, and it is a very good business. They have high recurring revenue, high margins, and they have strong secular trends. They own CarMax and other market data providers, and they provide a lot of data. You can think of this similar to how you would Bloomberg, right? With Bloomberg Terminal, that's kind of the same business. This has a higher level of competition than the credit rating, but I still consider it to have a fairly good moat and very strong secular growth trends. So the credit rating, the market data are both great businesses, but then we have the indices. This makes up around 10% of their revenue. This is another high margin part of the business with an incredibly wide moat. They own the indices of the Dow Jones and the S&P 500. So anytime that Vanguard or any other company uses an S&P 500 index, or they base an ETF off of it, or they base a mutual fund off of it, they have to pay S&P Global a royalty fee, a fee for using this indice. So they charge a tiny percentage of a fee under all the assets under management under all these indices. And there's so many people that are investing in passive ETFs and in the S&P 500, and that directly benefits S&P Global. So here you have the business, three segments of it, 
all that I think are incredibly good. And I just think that overall, this is such a high quality business. Now, when I compare other parts of this business to different companies, I think the valuation shows that it's reasonably valued. It's trading at a 28 Ford PE ratio. That seems a little higher than you would like to have, but I think that this is appropriate for this type of company. It has a wide moat and it has strong secular trends, and typically it trades between a 35 to a 40 Ford PE ratio. The free cash flow is at a 2%, but I think it's actually artificially low in the way that it's being displayed. It's dropped down over the past year, and I think this is temporary. A lot of companies stopped issuing debt as interest rates are going up. So we have the credit business slowing down a little bit, and as companies have to refinance and have to issue more debt in the future, the free cash flow is going to bump back up. When I look at it year over year, I think S&P Global is going to be doing around $5 billion of free cash flow in 2023. So I plan on seeing this go up substantially. And I think the free cash flow yield is far more attractive right now. It's around a 4% yield based off of this year's projected free cash flows. So I think the company's at a great valuation right now. I actually think that this is a, a decent time to be buying it. And that's why I've been buying it. And another thing about this company is I can't stress this point enough is how lean and efficient it is. They have almost no stock-based comp. Compare this against Google or Amazon or even Apple or Microsoft. All of them have stock-based comp that eat up a huge amount of their overall free cash flows. With S&P Global, that's not an issue. The free cash flows they generate are free cash flows the actual investor gets to keep. The company also has one of the lowest expenses in CapEx that I've ever seen. They're paying $100 million, $70 million, in some years like 2021, 35 million in capex. Basically nothing. It's almost like they don't have any capex requirements at all. If we look at R&D, they literally have no research and development. You can look at this as a negative thing. Maybe they're not the most innovative company, but I look at this as a positive. They're not having to pour a ton of money into R&D and risky bets. They simply don't need to. Their businesses thrive based off of what they already have. And I think that's a very good thing is how efficient this company runs. So I view S&P Global as an incredibly wide moat, high growth business with strong secular growth trends that I think is trading at a reasonable valuation. If I was to make a prediction, I think the company will grow its free cash flow per share around 10 to 13% over the next decade. And I think that it faces very little in the way of disruption. So that's why it remains the top holding right now and my biggest buy in 2023. Having said that, I can't time these purchases. I'm not a market timer. I just buy into these companies and hold them long-term and wait for them to compound. I think the company's gone through a little bit of a sell-off over the past year. I think that it's had some breathing room over the past couple of years. So I consider right now a reasonable time to be buying the stock, but that is not to say that it can't go down further. So if you're the type of person that you're fearful if the company's gonna go down 10 or 20% after you buy, you should not be investing in individual companies. Next up after S&P Global, we have another massive holding in my portfolio. This is number two. We have Vici. A part of the reason that I keep bringing this name up, and this is one that I've given out for over a year now. I've said that this company is a great company. I've said that it's a compounder. I've given it away many times, and I still have the exact same resolve as the very first day that I pulled the trigger and bought this company. 
I still feel the same way about the company. And it's great to look back over the history of owning a company for over a year and feeling just the same amount of enthusiasm as the very first day that you bought in. Vici is an exciting real estate company that invests in experiential real estate that are things that you have to experience by going to these properties. Most of what they own is Vegas real estate. A quick summary of why I think this company will continue to outperform is because of pricing power. Vici has pricing power. They have every single customer in contractual agreements with them. So these aren't customers. They're basically locked in. They have no choice. They have to pay Vici to be able to run their business. And with that lock-in, they have rent raises of 2% or 3% every single year. These are leveraged rent raises every year. So they have pricing power. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Pricing power every year. But then what if there's high inflation? Well, that's not a problem. Vici also has CPI adjusted rent for inflation. So if inflation continues to go up like crazy and it's 6% or 7%, Vici can raise prices by 6% or 7%. So they also have that baked into their rent raises. So overall, this is a company that has their customers locked in for long lease agreements, 40 years. They have no turnover in their tenants and they have rent raises and inflation adjusted rent raises baked into their price. And meanwhile, they can raise the dividend by about 8% per year. So I expect this company to continue to be a complete cash cow, paying me $500 to $600 per quarter year in and year out. And I'll be buying this company any dip I can get. Number three, we have another financial company. This is another company that I bought into new this year, which is MasterCard. This is one that I've recently changed my mind on. I've been studying the company for the past six months, and I decided finally in 2023 to really build a stake in this company. The fundamentals were simply too good. And the risks that I assessed earlier I thought were a little bit overstated. I don't think that MasterCard is facing quite the amount of risks that I once observed in the company. MasterCard is one of these companies that's so popular that most investors will probably miss it because it's in plain sight. It's one of those ones that's such a good company hiding in plain sight. If we look at the actual performance, let me just illustrate this for you. Over the past 10 years, this company has done 604% returns, not counting the dividend. So probably 700% if you factor in the actual dividend they're paying and compounding over time. That's against the S&P 500, which has done less than 200% returns. So it's completely crushed the market. And the reason why is because this is a long-term compounding company. There's lots of concerns regarding MasterCard. Let me go ahead and dive into a couple of the concerns. First of all, we have big tech companies like Apple creating Apple Pay. Their enormous network allows them to build their own payment networks. So that's one of the concerns. Is Apple Pay going to circumvent MasterCard? What about PayPal and Venmo? What about Block and Cash App? What if all these companies try to circumvent MasterCard? So far, this really hasn't come to fruition. Apple Pay works with Visa and MasterCard. Apple has decided that MasterCard and Visa have such a strong network that Apple needs to go through them. And I think it would be to their own detriment if they tried to circumvent them. The same thing with 
PayPal. They mostly use their networks. And I don't consider crypto to be a viable competitor to MasterCard. The single biggest competitor to MasterCard is this right here. It is cash. There's still trillions of dollars of cash. Lots of people still use cash. And this is a competitor that MasterCard is facing against. The good thing with facing cash as a competitor is it doesn't fight back. It's not an organized company. It can't really do anything other than continually lose market share year after year. So as the secular trend of more digital payments play out over time, cash is going to continually move to digital payments. And the companies that are positioned to take advantage of that, i.e. MasterCard and Visa, are going to be the biggest beneficiaries. So even if they do face some other companies trying to build networks, they have the long tailwind of cash continuing to be the biggest form of payment. If you look at the valuations of the company, it's a little high compared to your average company, but I think it's reasonable given the actual quality of this company. It has a 29 Ford PE ratio, a 3% free cash flow yield. You're not gonna see MasterCard trade down into a teens PE ratio. That rarely ever happens throughout its history. And MasterCard most of the time will only trade around a three to 4% free cash flow yield. So you might be able to buy it on a dip, but I think that that's very difficult to do. When I look over the past five years, what I see is a company that in 2020 was trading around 350. And then it's gone through this period of kind of leveling out, just relaxing a little bit. The price went up a little bit, then it fizzled out. So we have two and a half years of MasterCard really just taking a breather. And I think that this is how it works with these type of compounders. They might go multiple years where there's really no exciting price action. And if you buy in during these time periods, you have to be patient. Over the long run though, it'll go through these jarring, these completely explosive price movements. And that's how this works. Long periods of it being flat and then price movement upwards when the momentum happens. And this is impossible to time perfectly. So what I'm doing right now, I'm just buying in during this long flat straight, I'm buying in at what I think is a reasonable valuation, and I'm waiting until the next price surge, and I'll be very patient. It might take a couple years, I don't know, but I know at some point, the actual price of the company is gonna to continue to follow the fundamentals, and the fundamentals are going in one direction. MasterCard has really fast revenue growth, 12% for the past 10 years. MasterCard has explosive free cash flow growth, 14% for the past 10 years. Better yet is their free cash flow per share. 17% for the past decade. These are incredible metrics. And of course, this is a company that runs incredibly efficiently. Unlike Meta, unlike Google, unlike Amazon, they're not paying out half of their free cash flow in stock-based comp. So that's another benefit. You know the free cash flow they're generating goes back to the investor. And then like many of these very high quality payment processor companies, they have very low expenses. For example, if we look at the CapEx, it makes up around 4% of the total revenue of the company. Last year, the CapEx of Meta, for example, made up 30% of the total revenue. So 4% for MasterCard, 30% for Meta. That's the difference you're getting in efficiency of business model. So the fundamentals are flawless. The price has remained the same for about three years. And I think it's time that I buy into this company. I build a position and I just wait and be patient. And I think over time, I'll be rewarded by patience. Now, number four, we have another company that I think is a bit of a sleeper pick because it's not quite as high quality of a company as the other ones listed, but I think it's an outstanding pick within its industry. That is Texas Roadhouse. I've made many videos about this company. It's a stock pick that I've given away over the past year. 
and currently it's a very large holding. I have $42,500 of value in this company, and it's gone up $8,700 worth. So this has widely outperformed the S&P 500 since I purchased into it. And I think this is going to be a company that continually surprises investors to the upside. Texas Roadhouse is not the highest quality steakhouse, and that's not the target demographic they're going for. What they go for is the best value proposition for the customer. And value propositions for customers end up doing really well. So you'll notice that almost every Texas Roadhouse is completely packed on the weekend. No matter where you go, they all seem to stay busy. And that is, again, because of their aggressive pricing. They will outprice any other competitor when it comes to stakes. And most of the time, for a comparable price, they do a pretty good job in terms of quality. The company's fundamentals are so good compared to their industry, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any other restaurant company, a sit-down restaurant company, that has anywhere the similar fundamentals that Texas Roadhouse does. In terms of valuation, I've ran lots of different valuation methods on this company. My discounted cash flow says that the fair value for it, the intrinsic value is $126. And I think that's roughly fair. I think the company is still slightly undervalued from its intrinsic value based off of how good of an asset it is. Now, it does have an earnings report coming out tomorrow, so we'll get a little bit more insight of how it did last year. My expectation is the earnings report will be decent. I don't think it will be amazing, but I think it will be good enough. So this is one that I think will continue to be a sleeper compounder. Most people will not invest in this company because it's a boring restaurant and it's a small market cap company. But it's one of my core positions. It's one that's done really well, and I think it will compound for a long period of time. After Texas Roadhouse, we venture into the tech category to pick up number five. There are two companies I could pick here for my core holdings because they're both tech and they're both around the same size. We have Apple, which is a $45,000 holding with $15,800 in gains. Then we have Microsoft, a $43,000 holding currently basically flat on it. Now I have been buying into Microsoft more recently and I wanna explain why I have and expand this to big tech, not just Microsoft. The story of big tech right now is that things are slowing down. Microsoft's revenue growth year over year was 1.97%, very slow, almost stagnating. So the revenue has slowed down. The EBITDA has slowed down. The free cash flow has gone down year over year. So free cash flow is actually in decline. The net income has slowed down. The earnings per share, you guessed it, it slowed down as well. It's even in decline. What we see here is a has-been, a company that used to be great and now it's slowing down. And we can see the same thing with Meta. We can see the same thing with Google. We can even see the same thing with Apple. All these big tech companies are slowing down. In my opinion, I think this is a point in time where the patient investor is going to be rewarded. Because when you look at these companies and the slowdown they're having, they are emblematic of the broader economy. So investors that are trying to invest outside of big tech, because big tech is slowing down, I think are going to have a very difficult challenge finding companies that aren't slowing down. For example, one of the companies that had a slowdown and a core part of its business was Amazon. Amazon has AWS. They're Amazon Web Services. And Amazon Web Services decelerated from a 40% growth speed a year ago to 20% last quarter. So a massive slowdown in AWS growth speed. A lot of people have looked at this and said, wow, Amazon is doing poorly. Amazon is slowing down. That is not my takeaway when I see that AWS is slowing down. The reason why is because AWS 
is emblematic of every single tech company in the world. They're hosting most of the world's IT. Most of the usage on AWS and what they charge for is usage on their servers, meaning that more people that use their servers, more customers that their customers have, the more AWS has growth. And when we see a deceleration, that's not AWS slowing down, that's the entire tech world slowing down. That is Disney, that is CrowdStrike, that is Cloudflare, that is every single company that has anything to do with tech slowing down as well. So in my opinion, I think that Microsoft remains a very high quality company. And I think the slowdown that we're seeing in all of its business metrics, they're not really indicative of a problem with Microsoft in particular. And I don't believe that this slowdown impacts the overall valuation or intrinsic value of Microsoft long-term. I think all we're seeing is a little bit of cyclicality. Every single company has a bit of cyclicality. And right now we're in a very difficult environment for tech companies to grow. And you're gonna see that in a lot more than just Microsoft. So there's a quick rundown of five of my biggest core holdings and five of what I think are the highest quality dividend stocks in the market today. Now, the reason that I outline these are not to suggest that you follow me into these holdings or you do the same investments. I'm just giving a window into what I'm doing, showing you transparently what I'm doing with my portfolio and we can see together how it turns out. So make sure you're following your own research, investing in companies that you have a personal conviction on, that you've done research on, and that you're aware of the risks of it. So having said that, let's go ahead and move on to some news. We have the main story, which I consider to be the story of 2023. This is the buzzword of 2023, which the Joseph Carlson Show is officially declaring it as AI. That's the official buzzword artificial intelligence. You're going to be hearing this more and more. And I'm not just saying this anecdotally. I'm not just making up the numbers here. I have all the data to support that this has become the recent buzzword. Let's go ahead and take a look at this chart here from Bloomberg. This is where they measured the amount of mentions of different earnings reports and earnings calls of the word AI or anything relating to AI. On average, it was like 40 to 60 mentions in different investor earnings calls. Then it suddenly seemed to spike by two. It doubled any prior quarter in Q1 of 2023. Well, that's a little weird. Why did all of a sudden AI as a subject of discussion double? Every single company is now talking about AI. Well, that seems to be the case. And I'm guessing that as the quarters go on throughout this year, it's only going to go up because AI has become the magical word to get your stock price up. And this is what I want to jump into. The use of buzzwords as marketing terms for companies to investors. So we just saw some empirical data, but let's go ahead and jump in to today's CNBC. This was literally aired just today. I mean, look, this is an AI arms race that's happening. All of a sudden, over the past three months, AI has become not only the central subject, but every company is racing to become the AI company. And they're putting on the screen AI stocks. Here's your pool, your basket of stocks that can advantage themselves with AI, many of them having AI in the name. You're looking for pure play AI plays. That's where you look at C3, Soundhound, and some others in Palantir. And right now, investors, there's a scarcity. And I think also there's going to be significant M&A in the space, both on the strategic as well as financial buyers. Yeah, Sumo Logic just taken off the market in a PE deal, right? And I think that's just tip of the iceberg. Because at the end of the day, Frank, there's just, there's just not many pure players. And you look what's happened is Game of Thrones battle between Microsoft, 
between Google, look at Apple. That's sort of the quietly sitting there right now. I think everyone's trying to figure out who's going to be the winners. It's an AI arms race, a Game of Thrones battle to see who can sit at the top of the AI throne. Will it be Apple? Will it be Microsoft? Will it be a smaller player like Palantir or other data-centric companies? This is the type of news that you get on CNBC. It's very topical. It's very trending. Whatever is in investors' minds at the moment becomes the most important thing to put on TV. And this is why I think it leads so many investors down very short-term paths. And then they move on and talk about the other big AI players, this being big tech. Look at Google last week. When you rush things, that was a black eye moment for Google in terms of what we saw with Bard. I believe Apple is going to have some significant AI announcements by potentially by this summer as they've been investing, I think, anywhere from eight to 10 billion. And then Amazon. Jazzy's not just going to sit there watching from the sidelines. I, I could see them specifically navigating on the enterprise as well as consolidating and putting more of that into the consumer side. This is just starting. And this type of discussion is just getting started and it is continuing on. More and more companies are trying to become AI companies so that they can get attention and investors' money as well. And what I want to highlight is the type of cycles these popular terms go through, where they become the thing that every company needs to focus on. Over the last year and a half, a lot of us who work in offices have gone remote. And while I miss seeing the people I work with, I think remote work is here to stay for a lot of people. So we're going to need better tools to work together. Let's take a look at what working in the metaverse will be like. Imagine if you could be at the office without the commute. You would still have that sense of presence, shared physical space, those chance interactions that make your day all accessible from anywhere. Now imagine that you have your perfect work setup and you can actually do more than you could in your regular work setup. The metaverse, remember that? You've probably already forgotten by now. It was the most popular thing that every investor was focused on and their attention was focused on for a brief period of time. That was last year's thing, last year's trend. It was centered around the metaverse. The metaverse became such a popular, needed buzz term that CEOs that really had nothing to do with the metaverse felt obligated. It felt like it was part of their job to talk positively about the metaverse and to be included in this new evolving trend. Here's Bob Chapek, the one-time CEO of Disney, talking about Disney being part of the metaverse. It's the physical and digital aspects of your Disney lifestyle coming together so that if you're on Disney Plus, we should be aware of what happened, what you experienced, what you liked the last time you visited a park and vice versa. When you're in a park, we should know what your viewing habits are on Disney Plus. That's the big metaverse plan of Bob Chapek, to track analytics on streaming and the parks. And the point here is, is that every single company feels obligated to play along. Investors demand that every company last year was a metaverse company. And if you weren't a metaverse company, you were basically a nobody. You were left out of the popular group. So as a CEO, as a company, you had to play along. And we saw the very same thing with blockchain a year before that. Again, these are trends that you can literally look up as trends. If we look at Google Trends and we search the term metaverse, we see that for the past five years, the majority of it, metaverse wasn't really a thing. Then Facebook started talking about the metaverse and that encouraged every single other company that wanted to be included in that, that hype cycle to also mention the metaverse. So we have a peak of metaverse as a trend. And then we can see it quickly die after a one year period, going back down to almost where it was before Facebook ever came up with the term. 
before Metaverse, we could see the term blockchain. Now, it was a little bit more gradual. Blockchain really blew up in like 2016. Then it went through a little bit of a bounce back in 2021. And now it's dying down as a trendy word, no longer in the front of people's minds. Companies don't really want to become a blockchain company anymore. If we look at AI as a trend over the past five years, we can see the exact same pattern start to unfold. We're getting to the point now where it's starting to spike. So we're early in on this trend and it will have the exact same outcome as all of these other buzzwords. It's going to spike for a one year period and then investors will move on to the next greatest latest term to use to describe their company. Now, I don't want to be mistaken here. When I say that AI is a trend, I'm not implying that artificial intelligence is not real or that it won't have real world applications. All of these things are very real. Artificial intelligence is real. The metaverse is a real thing that meta is working on. And blockchain is also a real thing. So with every single trend, there's an element of realism and truth to it. But the trend is when there's an undue focus on it, a disproportionate amount of focus on something that's not as significant as it really is made out to be. In this case, I think AI is being talked up to be way more meaningful than it actually is. It is going to have an impact on all businesses over the next 10 years, but this term and it being used right now in many cases is being used as a marketing term. Just like many companies use the term blockchain to fleece investors, or they tried to hype up their company's stock by leeching off of Meta's success and using metaverse as a term. All of these companies will try to do that to get more attention to their company. So keep that in mind. Artificial intelligence is real. All these companies are going to be using it. Google's going to be using artificial intelligence like they have been for the past 10 years. You know that Microsoft is using artificial intelligence. They have a really good application with their chat GPT and their new Bing. I think that's a good demonstration of it. And then, of course, even companies that aren't as flashy are using artificial intelligence. If you read through companies' investor relations like S&P Global, they have multiple mentions of how they employ artificial intelligence. So many companies are using this already. They've been using artificial intelligence for the past decade. And finally, it's starting to get some notice. But investors are acting like all of a sudden companies discovered artificial intelligence. And that's just not the case. One last thing that I'd note on this subject is no matter what type of way a company tries to describe itself, whether it's a metaverse company, an AI company, some data analytic company, what matters is the company makes money and makes a lot of money. When you're doing analysis, focus on the actual money. Focus on the cash flows of the company. Can it generate a lot of cash flows for a long period of time? That's the most important question. All these flashy terms, they will come and go. The trends come every single year. Now, moving on, we also have the news of the economy and interest rates, and this dictates a large part of the market. The inflation report that came out yesterday was 6.4%. The expectations from economists and the predictions from every major bank and analyst firm was usually around 62 so it came in above expectations. And even though it's going down, it's going down slower than we would like to see. So that's what the market is dealing with right now, stubborn inflation. And then to further complicate the news, we also had news after Jay Powell's meeting, where he raised interest rates by 25 basis points. We had the news of a very strong jobs report, much stronger than expected which puts more pressure on Jerome Powell. And then just today, we had the retail sales report for January that rebounded sharply. In fact, this went up to an incredible extent. 
Look at this rebound in retail sales. So we have all this really positive economic news complicating Jerome Powell's goal. He's trying to slow down the economy, and this economy just does not want to slow down. Inflation's being stubborn, people are finding jobs, and re inflation's being stubborn, people are finding jobs, and retail sales are growing. Not good news if you're trying to slow down the economy. So I think as of right now, if I had a guess, I would see more interest rate hikes in the future. That could change if we get some really bad economic news, but everything right now shows a very strong economy. So for now, it looks like we're going to have higher interest rates for longer, putting more downward pressure on stocks. And I think a lot of the recent rally in the equity markets, it may be short-lived. So that's all for now. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I'll have more follow-ups later this week, so make sure you're subscribed if you haven't. And also follow the Joseph Carlson After Hours channel. I have a video coming out later this week on all the stocks that top investors are buying, all the super investors. And I think that'll be a very interesting video. So if you want to see that, make sure you subscribe to Joseph Carlson After Hours.